Welcome to episode 48 of Chin Music, it's a podcast presented by Fangraphs in frigid and sunny DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, returning to the co-host chair. This week, it's Fangraphs' very own, from I'm sure much warmer, San Francisco, California, Ben Clements. Ben, how are you? I'm good. It's uh, it's below 50 here, so. Oh, is it below 50? Yeah, is that it's what so it is? tough. I don't know how I deal with it. <laughs> Single digits here. Oh. We'll talk about the weather, much like Jeff Passan loves, um, but we'll also talk about baseball, or we'll try our best to talk about baseball. we got some stories. we got some things to talk about. Uh, we'll go through your emails, all that good stuff. Um, if you're a relatively new listener to the podcast because of last week's episode, welcome. This is what we do normally. Um, usually we have a guest, but well, we'll get into this when we talk about how hard it is to do baseball content these days, which comes later in the show. Um, let's start this week, Ben. With a labor update. So that's a bold claim that there's a labor update. Exactly. There is no update. Um, we talked uh, yesterday in the One Day Late show with, with, with Jeff Passan about uh, the fact that Major League Baseball and the union sat down virtually. Um, Major League Baseball made a proposal. It wasn't a good one. Uh, it, we are now at the, it was a week ago today, and here we are, and, and literally nothing has happened over that week. Uh, and we're starting to get to these weird points. Um, let's call them inflection points. They're they're rapidly approaching where the, where a, a week is a really long time. All of a sudden, not for them to talk in terms of uh, any hope for the season being on a normal schedule. Um, it is January twentieth. Uh, right now, you know, teams would be normally um, taking care of all of their kind of infrastructure and and. You know, get ready for the for the big trucks with all the equipment to go to Florida and Arizona and that kind of thing. Those are still happening, obviously, because minor league spring right. training is, is going to start, and, and you know the schedules are out, and minor league spring training begins, um, or rather, the games are going to begin somewhere on the 18th of March, it looks like. And so, the way it's looking right now is is that you know teams are still doing that, but you know. Big league spring training, teams start reporting, players start reporting for the physical somewhere around Valentine's Day. Um, our chances of that happening right now are, 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 are minuscule, if anything, above zero. So in 2020, which is, I think, a useful like a blueprint for what could happen. COVID year. Quote-unquote summer camp was, what, four weeks long? Yes. And I, you were still with a team then, and... How was, right? Yeah. It was fine. Yeah, it, I was. And it was fine. Like, uh, so, so spring training is too long. No one needs right. to be there. It, no one needs six weeks. Like, nobody. Nobody. It, 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 it happens for, um, like most things, money purposes. You know, it, it's, um, right. you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of tourism. There's a lot of other things. 
um, all, every team as part of their you know stadium lease or friendly tax increment financing or whatever it is around their stadium have a you know within the contract it, it's in the contract like you're guaranteed 13 home games or something like that right right and so and so they have to do it they're never going to shorten spring training uh by choice but you really only need three or four weeks to get ready and so you know as even though hitting a normal schedule for spring training is becoming really moot we still have a chance of getting to we can get to the, to somewhere where we can get people in Florida and Arizona in early March. I still think we can be okay. Um, but even that, I think, I don't know. It feels pessimistic at this point. I, I, I really thought if you would have asked me a week ago what's going on, I would have guessed that at least they would have had another talk by now. But the fact that we've gone seven days and we haven't, I think right. it shows you how, um, how steadfast the players are going to be here um, and good for them. Uh, and I just, I, I wonder if we're just a little bit more dug in than, than maybe I thought we are. And I thought we were pretty dug in, but I even, I might've been underestimating it. Yeah. It seems to me from the outside that the owners had this idea, which I think might've been a sound, you know, ex ante negotiating idea of we're just going to present non-offers for a while and not negotiate for a while, wait for the players to make a concession, then we'll move from there with first mover advantage because they've conceded first. And it just seems like the players aren't really cooperating. The last owner's offer, I don't really think merited a response. It wasn't a real offer. Right. But my guess is that the owner's plan with that, they know it's not a real offer, was that we'll make this fake offer, the players will feel motivated to counter, and then we'll we'll start with an edge. It's an understandable that, yeah. uh, instinct. Sure, and I, I, it's it's funny. I always remember the, you know, the wonderful world of of free agent negotiations, where it's like, well, what do you want? Well, what are you offering? Well, what do you want? You know, and it would it'd be this day, sometimes right. weeks long thing of no one actually throwing a number out there. Um, you know, and you always like couched in weird terms, like, well, can you offer us any guidance in what your player would be looking for? You know, yeah. and, and 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 you'd get nothing back, and you never did. Like maybe you get years, but never dollars. And it's like, well, make an offer, and we can start something off, and. Well, what are you looking for? And it just kind of went back and forth, and I feel like we're there now with this, um, with with, with the union talks, and it, it's, I don't know. I feel more pessimistic. I would still probably set the over under at one fifty four, um, but I guess you know, my, I, all my, all your chances of of a good thing happening, I guess, are, are what's really going down the hill here. Yeah. So, I got very into studying brinkmanship uh, when I traded government bonds because of the U.S. government's repeated flirtations with debt ceiling violations (laughs) and how the two parties would wait until the last second to make a deal every time. And the deal was the same deal that they were offering three weeks before, and they would just wait until the day before to do it. There's a real incentive in negotiations to wait to the last minute. Right. I mean, that's the reason all the trades happen on That's why the trade deadline is the trade deadline, yeah. And that's why on November 30th, we were writing free agent pieces you know, six deep because everyone, if you wanted to get a deal done, you had to get it done before December 1st. Mm-hmm. And so when there are these hard deadlines, negotiations tend to push back to them. There's just not much reason to cave before then for both sides. And it's kind of a symmetrical incentive to stall until there's some self-imposed deadline. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there is a self-imposed deadline by the two sides that we haven't heard about. I you know, I, I don't know self-imposed. Like, you know, I just I just kind of keep going to April 1st is when people start losing money. Like, there is money in spring training. The players don't get paid during spring training, so they don't have that same 
incentive. Yeah. And, and, I want, and I wonder if they see that as as the as a possible thing to their right. advantage, just in the sense that that's that's the one period where the owners are making money, a small small amount of money compared to what they're making during the regular season. Yeah. But there is a revenue generation there. Well, players still aren't making money, so there's a maybe. I wonder if there's they think that they have an advantage there, uh, and then everybody starts losing money in April. So, what day do you think a deal would have to be done by for us to play 162 games? Uh, February 15th. February 15th. So that's like a five-week uh, spring training. That's well. I think it's it a depends four on week. who the players. It's a four-week. I think if they agree on February. 15th it, it, i think it i just think it takes two weeks to ramp up right that that's my so february 15th lets people get there it's, you know kick off march 1st and kick off a regular season at a normal pace and and we get 162 so um, when do you so, think so that's three weeks sides will each give a substantive proposal i know that's the problem like i i really thought they would talk again and, and after they talked a, a week ago today and I, I i really thought we'd be talking about more talks if you will, and, and we're not, and there's no, not only are there no talks, but like you'd also at least see some, well, they're going to, they're going to meet again this weekend or something like that. We're getting nothing. And so I right. don't know. And, and so I reached, I don't think we're going to see even, um, you know, substantial proposals until mid February at this point. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I think it does worry me that they haven't agreed what they're really going to be negotiating on yet. If that makes sense. Like yeah, the, no, for the sure. Terms like the terms of what they're going to be arguing over have not yet been defined. Are they right. going to be arguing over? Uh, well, the, I mean, the owners have said like there are certain areas that are just no go, and right. the players are going, "Well, we want to go there." Yeah, and so you're 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 nowhere. Like, are they actually arguing over bonuses for rookies to prevent service time manipulation? Are they doing luxury tax stuff? Are they going to do an international draft? I'd feel better if they had set the basically the, well, I, the yeah. Well, I think all those over. those kind of things. You know, I think like international draft that's going to be the end of the discussion. Yeah, you know, and and so, um, you know, I, I the fact that they won't you know, the owners are saying like big issues for the players like time to arbitration and time to free agency and, and service times like that are are no goes means like there's just no talks, right. Um, yeah, I, I do think that if they start making real proposals on February 10th, and we don't actually know what they're negotiating over, it's going to be hard to get the deal done in five days. I'd feel a lot better if they had, if they were, if they had agreed on the axis they'd be negotiating on. Right. I, I, yeah, I feel like, yeah, I don't, I just don't feel like we're as far down the road as I thought we would be by January 20th is what I'm, is where I'm yeah, at. I totally um, agree. I still don't think we're going to like have an 80 game season i still think we're gonna have a substantial season but i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm maybe i'm daft i don't know at this point it's it's it it, and you know in talking to people with teams um they feel uh confused as well uh in in the sense you know obviously this is happening between the owners and the union and and a lot of people in front offices including people at the you know the gm and the agm level even are, are a little in the dark here um and and um i they seem a little surprised by by how slow this is going as well, um, which concerns me. Um, we have breaking news, Ben, Ooh. which is Major League Baseball uh, has kind of shut down the Rays idea of doing the half season in Florida, half season in Montreal thing. Mm, yeah. Um, this was never really an idea in the first place. This was uh, honestly, this to talk about negotiating. 
this was absolutely just a tactic to try to get a better situation there in Tampa. I don't think they ever had any real plans to do this in the first right. place. This is just leverage um, against it's, uh, yeah, it's the just trying city to, deal or whatever. Ibor? Right. This, this is just trying. Ibor, I believe it is. and Or though it's Ebor, it's Ebor. And um, I, I think this was just them trying to do that. And, and I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I... I understand respecting the Rays for being able to accomplish what they can, giving their circumstances. I just kind of don't respect their circumstances, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so let's talk about some some baseball players now. Oh, I um, love talking about baseball players. We had a, a bit of a weird occurrence this week, where uh, the top free agent still on the board, shortstop Carlos Correa. Uh, during here, during our, our our kind of freeze in transaction ability, has switched agents, yeah. And he has left uh, William Morris Endeavor, uh, who is with who he was with during the first flurry of free agent signings, and he obviously did not sign. And he has gone to Scott Boris. Um, further reporting has come out. I believe John Heyman wrote that he was looking for three hundred and thirty million dollars in in terms of a total package. Um, I. Don't know. I have no. I have no insight as to what happened here. I don't know if he wasn't happy with what the offers he was getting and blames William Morris. I don't know if Boris said, "Hey, I can get you 400 Like I have no idea where they are. Um, and these things happen, and I do have to. I'm kind of forced to wonder um, if there's going to be a lawsuit in the sense that obviously, if Carlos Correa signs a 330 million dollar deal, that is a eight figure payday for the representative, right? Yes, um, and all of a sudden, you know, is, does does the, do the previous agents? You know, let's just make the, we're going to make something up, okay? Okay. Um, let's, 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 right. Let's say Carlos Correa signs with the Rays. This is now you know I'm making it up for <laughs> three hundred. Right. I, I want to make sure that I, that people don't think I'm like coming off of this some sort of insider knowledge. Carlos Correa signs with the Rays for three hundred fifty million dollars. Um, like legally, can the previous agents go? Well, we talked to the Rays before you fired us, and we established the ground, you know, the basis for this deal. And right. Like, we want, we want, our, we want our part. And, um, but yeah, you do see these occasionally. But like, this is such a strange timing for something like this. Yeah, I don't actually know the, uh, like, what's supposed to happen then. I... And this happens all the time. Like, like you know, players switch agents all the time. It's just to, to do it in the middle of a sense where you're about to. Right, and he's about to get really paid for the first time in his career. Like, it's not weird that players switch agents. A lot of players, I don't remember any specific names. But this happened a few times recently. They'll switch agents to Boris going into their walk year, right? Because that's like, who you yeah. want doing your free agent deal. I get it. Yeah, exactly. I, I got no problem with that. That seems like a, a very reasonable decision. Mm-hmm. But doing it potentially, I mean, it's not a day in the case. middle of an off season, basically. Right, <laughs> but it's like switching coaches at halftime. It could be. It could easily be that they sign uh, a CBA, a new CBA, and then the next day, Correa signs. Like, the next yeah. day of available baseball signings could feature Carlos Correa getting a truckload of money. It could be right. that, the, that, in terms of days of baseball's operation, he signed this deal one day before uh, getting paid. Right. And, and we have no idea. Like, what if he was, like, real close with somebody? It easily could be. Right? Certainly, would, I mean, someone has offered him a, more than $200 million. Right. I mean, what if he was real close with somebody? Like they they were, you know, uh, approaching the finish line. They had to, they had to fix some some clauses and things like that and they were still trying to, you know, argue for an extra option year or something and then they but they were real close. 
Right. And it felt like, man, this is going to get done. It's going to take some time, but it's going to get done. And then obviously the lockout started and it couldn't like, how are you, how do you feel if you're willing? And you know, maybe he was close with nobody and that's why he switched agents. We just don't know. But I do find it fascinating that this happened at this time for, totally for this big a name. Um, you want to talk a little bit about Seiya Suzuki. Yes. Um, who is still, uh, you know, obviously unsigned, still wants to come here despite the lockouts, made it very clear. Yeah. Um, this is a really impressive player. This is, you see, this is the, the, the offensive star of, of, of NPB. Uh, he has played at a star level in Japan for six years. Um, he's coming off his best year uh, with a, an OPS over 1,000. Uh, he is entering his age prime if you believe in that stuff and 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 you know it maps to this but you know not every player has the same prime but he's about to be 27 um and uh rj anderson who does really good work by the way um yeah. over at cbs i uh, got a hold of some batted ball data that seemed to suggest this dude's real um and the, it, there's been a bit of a soap opera like he was you know whatever following the red Sox on instagram or something and then unfollowed them or whatever and there's still a lot of people think he's gonna end up in boston but um I think this guy's a real player. Like, I think this guy's, uh, you know, this almost is too strong, but like a difference maker. This guy impacts your, 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 where you, where you end up in the standings. This is, this is not just like nice fill in piece. I think he's a really yeah. good baseball player. I, I wanted to talk about him because I think I underrated him in the top 50 free agents thing. Where do you write? Do you remember? In the mid 30s, low yeah. 30s. That's too yeah. low. Yeah. I would, I would, I, I'm with you. Yeah. If we did, so. we did it today, we'd move him up. My, my big issue with him was that it didn't really have a strong sense. Like, I had the statistical record, but a righty power bat, it's the kind of, and in a kind of sketchy outfield position, is the kind of thing where if it's a good bat, that's a difference-making bat. And if it's more like a platoon bat, then right-handed hitting platoon bats are, eh. It's just a guy. Yeah, it's just a guy. And so I wasn't 100% convinced on the bat, and so I just hedged low. I think that was a mistake in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, whatever. Like, I'm not beating myself up over it. People make mistakes in retrospect all the time. But I think this batted ball data and just generally reading more and studying more about him has made me more interested. Like, how good do you think he is? I... I'm gonna put the pressure on you. What is the what is the Ben Clemens projection? Give me give me a triple slash line for what this guy can do. Ah, that is a. I like that way of looking at this. Let's. Let me come up with a good example for what I think it'll be by looking at a player who I'm not going to name, and I'm basically just going to give him that player's triple slash line. No, this, this is a good one. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm ready. 260, 340, 520. Who's that player? Uh, do you want to know? Is it Chris Bryant? It's not. It's, uh, it's Pete Alonzo. Okay. I don't think he'll think, have maybe as much power as Alonzo, but he'll I think have it's a less, less swing and miss. I was going to say, I think it's less power, but more contact. I was going to go like 275, 358, 487. Yeah, so the reason I picked Pete Alonzo is because he was one of the people mentioned in RJ's article as a... As having comparable ball batted ball, yeah. Yeah, it was a weird true. group. I mean, like you know, like Pete Alonso's in there, Bryce Harper's in there, and you know, Trevor Larnick's on there. Like it, you know, it's it's yeah, Larnick is definitely the the strange one. And I don't know what you do with Ryan McMahon being in there because I don't know. 
everyone in Colorado is just weird to me. But yeah. I, I think that something like Alonzo, righty bat, a lot of pop, um, I, he's going to strike out. Like, I understand that he's got pretty decent chase rates in NPB. Mm-hmm. And, and, and good contact rates. Good contact rates. I think that a lot of those you just need to discount for guys who are power hitters when they come over just because the fastballs are a lot harder to teach. That's the one thing that, you know, I don't know if RJ has this data or not, but it's the one thing that it was a data piece that, you know, when I worked for a team, you always kind of looked at, um, which was because you had, you know, along with the batted ball data, obviously you have the pitch coming in data. Right. And it was to try to measure what guys are doing against 95 plus. Yeah. And I, I would be interested to see, and, and, you know, a guy like, just as a just because he's playing in Japan, a guy like Suzuki's not seeing a ton of ninety five plus, right? Um, and so it would be interesting to see. Like that's the one worry with any player who comes over from Japan or Korea is just like, what do they do against top line velocity? Because they just haven't seen it much. Yeah. So what I would tend to do is just discount his strikeout numbers. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think I think he'll have worse strikeout numbers than you'd expect from his NPV data. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You know that's totally reasonable and you can still be a really good hitter like that but i mean the power looks real right he definitely hits balls as hard as you would want them to i always there's also always the question that's always kind of a black box for teams which is just um the ball is different there and like how it's different it's very very hard to measure um and then just the the environments themselves um are, are different a lot of indoor stadiums um a lot of weird things i i i've more temperate watched, in general i believe more temperate in general i've been to baseball games in Japan and, and, you know, I, I, at an outdoor stadium and the ball seemed to be flying normal and indoor stadium at Tokyo dome, it felt like the ball really carried and, and, you know, completely anecdotal. I have no idea. Um, yeah. the hardest but, hit but ball I feel weird. like I've seen in real life was, uh, was in Japan. It was hit by Shohei Otani. So that's a, there you go. Relevant data point And it did not leave the park. Hmm. Went to a Chibolota Marines game. It was pretty sweet. Nice. So I wanted to see Otani play. Star of the That's game great. was Willie Mopena, not Shohei Otani. Mm, I saw Willie Mo when I was there. That's great. Nice. Was he on the Marines uh, then? I think he was, yeah. What a guy. Yeah. If you haven't been to a game in Japan, highly recommend it. Great Kevin, fans. I've got to tell you this. It's great a, food. It's a segue. Willie Mopena is not a fast guy. In no. In the game I was watching, he got a single, and uh, he pointed the dugout and then he pointed to home plate like i'm gonna score on the next base hit and the next ball was a ball in the gap and he started chugging just maximum <laughs> william opinia effort and <laughs> when he rounded third base i thought he was out by 20 feet and but he was going for it he ran through a stop sign and the catcher just whiffed it and he scored and he came up just going crazy the crowd has special cheers for him they were going nuts oh yeah it was awesome it was uh <laughs> it was a great time Oh, Willie Mo. Um, story that happened yesterday, um, or not yesterday, last week that we didn't talk about in last week's podcast happened right before we recorded, um, was John Lester announced his retirement. Uh, 16-year career, um, in crazy impressive career win-loss record, because those matter, of uh, 200 and 117 um, for a 631 winning percentage. Um, but he ends his, he ends his career with... with um, 2,488 strikeouts. He was a five-time All-Star. Never won a Cy Young, but finished in the top five three times. Um, Obviously a great stretch with Boston to start his career. 
uh, a really good stretch with the Cubs, um, and then was kind of a you know a, kind of a hanger on, if you will, in 2021 with the the Nationals and the Cardinals. Uh, even though he kind of pitched okay for the Cardinals when he got traded. Famous Cardinal um, John Lester, yeah. Famous Cardinal John Lester. We'll always remember his time with the Cardinals. Um, you know, probably certainly remembered for being a bit of a intense uh, mound presence, if you will. Um, uh, remembered for his trouble throwing to first base, uh, but also remembered for being a, a really, really good pitcher. I'm not Jay Jaffe, nor do I pretend to be, and I have no sort of wonderful statistical system. Feels like he's in more in the Hall of Very Good Players than a Hall of Fame type. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a, a really good career, a guy who, um, you know, truckload, like, this guy made 26 postseason starts in his career. Um, and, and, and a part of some really good teams and some really big moments, but... Um, John Lester was a, a really good pitcher for a really long time, um, threw over 200 innings nine times, which I think is actually a, a better accomplishment than a lot of people maybe realize. I think I, I remain steadfast in the, in the belief that innings pitch is the most underrated stat uh, in the public world. Um, but this guy was a, you know, this guy took the mat, just took the bump every, every time and, and, and was consistent with it and you know, just pencil him in for 30 plus starts, which is worth an incredible amount to teams and, Really good pitcher had a really good career. Wait, I promise this is not a Hall of Fame discussion. No, go ahead if you want but to. Let me ask you some comparisons. Oh, okay. Just of baseball players that we both think are good, but I'm not sure where to place them relative to John Lester. John Lester or David Cohn? Very similar, aren't they? Very similar. I mean, aside from lefty righty. Right. Um, yeah, maybe Cohn by a little bit. Yeah, I think I'm Lester by a little bit, but it's close. Yeah. Uh, John Lester or Jamie Moyer? Lester, because I feel like Moyer was more of just a an accumulator. Your favorite stat. <laughs> I know, but he's more of an accumulator. I, I agree. I agree. I heard uh, the cra- that, I'm going to go on a tangent real quick. I heard the the most insane statistic ever. I, I think Mike Farron said this on on um, on the radio a couple more, that when Jamie Moyer retired, he had faced nine percent of Major League <laughs> Baseball players, like literally, <laughs> of of Major League Baseball position players he had by when he retired he had like one in 11 he had faced at some point well he was lucky to be in an interleague play era right in an era where there were players but still and to and to, and to pitch 37 years in the big leagues yes, that helped all right um john lester or mark burley i would yeah, lester i think had a longer tail right he did i would take i've got burley though yeah i mean burley had a better prime Burley had a better prime, and he had more overall war. Mm, and he actually pitched okay. more innings. Wow, okay. I was wrong. Take little, well, yeah, yeah, that surprised me, too. Uh, he pitched more than 3,000 innings. Wow. His high, it's funny, because you look at Lester's um, page on baseball reference and, and his most similar pitcher, by a pretty wide margin, Dwight Gooden. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, similar pitchers. Like, like... David Cohn's number two at, at, with a, a similarity score of 913. There's all sorts of guys in the 890s to 910s. And then his highest similarity score of 945.6, Dwight wow. Gooden. Oh, like, so, Dwight's in the Hall of Fame for me, just because, but that's my Hall of Fame is, is about yeah, fame. Not, he's famous. Not, yeah, he's super famous. Mark Burley um, pitched 200 I, innings for 14 straight years. Yeah, that's incredible to me. Just incredible. All right, and I've got um, one last one for you on our. Mm-hmm comparisons to other players and i immediately forgot who it was so maybe we could oh good I, i'll take that guy <laughs> oh i feel like it was going to be a good comparison but <laughs> i forgot it 
So we're not going to do it. Well, let's talk about something weird then. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you are a content creator. I am. And Fangraphs is a content website that focuses on the game of baseball. It is January 20th. And normally we'd be doing previews, and, and we still have plenty of really great content. We have, we have you know, uh, obviously the prospect lists are rolling out. Those do great traffic. Um, our, our friend Dan Siborski is doing all the zip stuff. Those do great. Like, we have plenty of stuff for you. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going to lie to you. If you want to do a podcast every weekend, it's a baseball podcast. It's kind of a challenge right now. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, I am committed. We're going to do the show every week. It's probably going to be shorter than it normally is, and, and that's okay. Um, because it, you're struggling to come up with, with, with content and you're struggling. You don't like baseball to have a baseball podcast. You have to have, to have things to talk about. And baseball is not giving us a ton to talk about, um, other than the labor stuff. And obviously, you know, uh, Jeff and I were able to devote, you know, over an hour of labor talk yesterday and, but you can't do that every week either. Um, and so it's a struggle. And so, uh, you know, sitting around and it's no secret. I got friends in the Chicago music world. And, and one of uh, my Chicago musician friends, uh, we have a little text circle, uh, sent the text, holy shit, look at this. And it was from um, someone kind of connected to the Chicago music world, a, a wonderful kind of Chicago weirdo artist um, named Mr. King, who has gone viral in the past. Um, he's a YouTube video of a parking door doing an impression of Miles Davis that has three and a half million views. Um, he has a video where he added... Um, profanity and cursing to the boston dynamics robots that is like four and a half million views um he makes weird things and he made something that was kind of amazing that when i first heard i said i can't believe this actually exists uh he is uh i wrote about today at fangraphs go to fangraphs the pieces up uh he invented i'll say invented it's fine sleep radio baseball and so you know, he had sleep problems, like to fall asleep uh, to podcasts and at times like to fall asleep to West Coast games. Um, you know, like a West Coast, well, sorry, it was a West Coast game I don't care about. But he always found at some point, like while he's trying to fall asleep to a game, like the commercials would come on, they'd be super loud and someone's yelling about a truck or, you know, something exciting would happen, which is not what you want when you're falling asleep, you know, and right. the crowd would get those. And then he, he said, you know, to himself. Like, what if there was a baseball game that didn't have that? Like, the, the ads were at the same calm level, and there wasn't too much exciting happening. And so he decided to make one. And so he invented uh, a fake game. And the game uh, takes place in, in the fictional Northwoods League, which he forgot was the actual name of a, a league. Um, it's between Grand Rapids and Cadillac. And um, his wife came up with player names. And it's an entire, it, it, the, the, the file is two hours long. It's an entire game called by the, it's called, he, he's the voice of uh, Wally McCarthy, who calls the game. Um, Wally's excitement level um, never goes above a two. Uh, he's always super calm. There's a lot of pauses and then the crowd noise, which is basically white noise, um, goes on and on. And I, I listened to the whole thing and kept score because I was writing about it. It's a six to four win. Um, Cadillac star Blinky Malone with a quality start, pitching well. Good work, Blinky. And yeah, Blinky's pretty good. He had some control issues, got out of a couple jams. And there, there's fake ads done by um, a, a, another artist, a, a writer and voiceover artist in Minnesota who does these fake ads 
um, for like Ted's fishing and, um, and, and other strange, strange things. And it's such a funny, interesting idea. He's already gotten like a thousand or so downloads. He said, there's no way this thing's ever going to get more than 4,000. If he does that, he's, he's thrilled. Um, he's going to do more. He said, he, you know, he kind of committed to, to maybe doing 12 games <laughs> and, wow. and, and it's someone looking for someone to, to something to do. Like I called him and talked about it and wrote about it, but such a strange thing. And, and yet at the same time, the second I started playing, I'm like, this is like, this is just wonderful. I mean, it sounds great to me. And, um, but you know, at a time when you are looking for content, you're like, Oh look, baseball content, everything's good in the world. Like, yeah. have, have you, have you had struggles? Oh yeah. Um, I will tell you that right now I'm doing a lot of research on line scores define a line score just like runs hits errors runs hits errors um i don't like them <laughs> why not well i don't i think the idea of encapsulating a baseball game in three columns is genius there's a reason that it was invented in 1858 1858 and has persisted to this day that's very impressive henry chadwick invented them um I think that if you let me pick three columns, I would definitely pick runs. That seems very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not pick hits or errors. Well, what would you... Okay, so what, what are your other two? This is fun yeah. now. What are your other two stats? So I'm calling them 1B and XB. It's that is, already obtuse, but go ahead. That's things that create one base advancement. So like a walk or a hit by pitch or a single or reaching on an error. Then extra bases. So if I want to know what happened in the game, I feel like knowing how many, you know, singly things happened and how many extra base hits happened is a lot more useful than hits and errors. Mm-hmm. Because hits is just too broad. If you know that a team is slugging, they're going to score a lot more relative to their hits. Errors are not useful because most games don't have errors or have one error. And errors don't seem to do a lot to... If you tell me this game had an error... I say, oh, okay, that, that doesn't really paint a picture for me. Mm-hmm. But if you told me this game had six extra base hits, or ten extra base hits, or it had 21 base advancements but no extra base hits, well, I kind of get the game better. And so I love the idea of encapsulating baseball in this very concise manner. It's, it's really useful. But I, I just think that the thing that it was optimized for, baseball doesn't look like that anymore. I found a great box score from 1876 that is uh, it's in Wikimedia Commons. It was a game between Boston and Athletic. Uh, I don't actually know who Wait, these teams are. that's a thing? Athletic? Uh, I mean, it could be Athletics written wrong in the, in the okay. scorebook. Let's, let's call it Boston and Athletic. That's fine. Uh, Boston had 53T, which is times at bat, 19R runs, uh, 21-1B. I don't know. 27 PO. Also don't know. But uh, the key part, 13 errors. Oh my, yeah. Well, sure. It was like that. They didn't wear gloves. This was right around the time that gloves were first introduced. They were certainly not in common usage. Uh, Athletic only scored 11 runs. So they they got beaten 19 to 11. They committed 15 errors. And so if you wanted a line score, errors were really useful. There were 28 errors in this game. Like, they happened way more than any other event. But now, do you, even know, do you even know what the average number of errors in a game is right now? Uh, Keep talking, and I'll look this up. 
I, if I had to guess, I would guess that it's gonna, about one. I was going to go 1.2, but but yeah. Yeah, like in there. And so that's just not... And it, it doesn't affect the outcome of the game nearly as much as other things do. So I think the line score is really cool. And one way you could improve it is just switch errors for walks. Like walks plus mm-hmm. hit by pitches. That, that would be better already. But I, I think it would be useful to know, like, you know, little knocks and big knocks. Uh, so that, that should tell you about how much content I have to write about at the moment. I mean, <laughs> I do think this is important. Like, I think that if line scores were better, I would enjoy them more. And I, I already think they're very useful. There's a reason that they're on every game summary. The average came at 1.08 errors. Ooh, all right. So um, almost dead between us. But I price is right. right as you. Price, price is right rules you win. Um, I, are you uh, familiar with the concept? I, I can't remember what it's called. Um, there's a there's a Twitter account that just finds um, or talks about unique NFL scores. It's yeah, like Scorigami. Scorigami. Thing. I was gonna. I almost called it Scorgazi, which is which is uh, Hillary Clinton will be testifying about later. <laughs> um, Scorigami, which is like unique NFL. Have you ever thought about looking into unique line scores? Oh, Kevin, have I thought about it? Because obviously, because because obviously, four to two is not a unique score, but like maybe four hits on seven hits and no errors, and against two, eleven and zero is. So I have looked into unique pitching line scores. Okay. Uh, I think you will really enjoy this one. Uh, I'm looking it up in the past right now. Because I, I would think you could do something like that. Uh, you have yes. to, I mean, because that's six statistics, right? Are you, are you talking about like a pitching line, like innings pitch, hits, runs, earned runs, walk, strikeouts, right? I added home runs. Okay, so there's seven, you have seven things. You're going to get unique pretty quick. Yes. Um, I'm searching it as we speak in the background, which is not great uh, baseball, but here's a unique pitching line score. Jordan Montgomery, June 2nd, 2021. Six and a third innings pitched. So far, pretty common. Yeah, sure, especially today. Five hits. Very common. Three runs. Very common. One earned run. See, that that gets a little weird. A little weird. Uh, two walks. Very normal. Six strikeouts. That's unique. He's the first person the to ever first do that. out of more than 1.1 million MLB pitching lines in the regular postseason since 1901. That's kind of amazing. Wild. That a that a very run of the mill, you would you wouldn't look at it twice pitching line is unique. Yeah, so I basically looked at all of the pitching lines that have happened since uh, there were earned runs. I added home runs just to uh just because I think that will that makes games look it just makes things more unique. And what about I've, hitting? Have you ever done hitting lines? Just like box score lines, just at bat, you know, at bats, runs, hits, RBIs. Hey, if this lockout moves on, I certainly will. Because I remember someone like I like the weirdest one I ever saw was like a four three zero two. Wait, I think you'll enjoy this. I found the most common looking unique line. Okay, uh, I think is it? Well, well, wait a second. Is it? Are you including reliever lines? No, oh, sorry, only starts. Oh, okay. Because I whatever. So okay, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess this. Okay. So this is the most common pitching line for a starting pitcher yeah, so over the, the history of baseball, right? I will tell you the way I did it so that you can tell me. Okay. So yeah, you won't be confused by common. So mm-hmm. I looked at how frequent each individual component was. 
Okay. Oh, so it's not the most common line. It's the most, it's the most it's, common it's innings, a then the most common hits, then the most common runs. Yeah, so it's a unique line. No one else has ever done this line. Mm-hmm. But each of the components themselves are pretty unremarkable. Okay. And this is history of baseball, so we're going back. Uh, I think I started in, like, when they scored earned runs, so early okay. 1900s, but history of baseball-ish, modern era. So it's more than it's it's seven or more innings, right? Uh, it is not. Okay. But it's a it's it's six innings. I'll give you that. Because that's okay. So pretty common amount. Well, give me the line now, because I'm a little confused. But go ahead, give me the line. So it's Jack Morris, which is great. <laughs> that's what you're already on top. Yeah. Six innings pitched, six strikeouts, three walks, six hits, no runs. So six six oh oh three six. Yep. And, and that's so a unique one. That's unique. No one has ever done that, which is shocking. Right? Like that's, that's amazing. It's so. I mean, it's it's sounding. like the like the nine base runners and no runs is is pretty. That's tough to do. Is it? I mean, two double plays and you're right there. He didn't allow any home runs. Mm-hmm. That's still a lot. That's it, a lot to not give up a run. It's a lot, but uh, it's not like an insane amount. Um, the next most common line, Donovan Osborne, guy I've not heard of. Yeah, former uh, Cardinal. Six Lexi. innings pitched, three strikeouts, two walks, six hits, four runs, but none earned. Yeah, that's where things get weird. It's like it's like the unique hitting lines are always ones that have like things in the runs and RBI column, but no, not in the hit column. Yeah, like that one I talked about. It was like something like four three zero two and. Like he hit into like three fielders' choices where he got on base, but you know the the lead runner was out, and like right. one of them happened with one of them happened with a runner on third, and like he'd be at the double play, so he got an RBI, and he had like a, I mean, he never got a hit, but he drove in a couple and scored three. Yeah, like that's weird. Those very weird uh, ones are always uh, enjoyable. Yeah, and I, I, I someone did like a zero four zero zero once where they just walked four times and came around. Wait, here's the most common line in history. Okay, I'm ready. Nine innings pitched. That's the most common line? Well, because you went back. Yeah. When people threw complete games 80-90% of their starts. Yeah. Okay, um, so nine innings. What's the, so what is this nine-inning line? Four strikeouts, one walk, four hits, no runs. Wait, the most common line is a four-hit shutout? Yep. So I think the reason for that... Baseball used to be weird. It's partially that baseball used to be weird. But, but also because everyone was throwing nine innings. Everyone's throwing nine innings. And there's a lot of numbers that aren't zero. Mm-hmm. But there's only one zero. And so if you... <laughs> well, like... <laughs> that's, there's a lot of numbers that aren't zero. But there's only one zero. There's only one two, Ben. It's true. But I guess my point <laughs> is that um, a lot more... Like, if you're better than the other team, you can't. they can't score negative runs. But there's all kinds of different numbers they can score. So if you looked at a distribution of runs scored in games, the highest <laughs> like number... one or four or three. I bet you that the highest number over baseball history would be zero. And then, like, the other ones are all over. Like, there's lots of runs scored in all the other numbers. But right. like, there's a lot of shutouts. And also, there's kind of this thing, like, you're much more likely to pitch a complete game if you don't allow any runs. But yeah, the most common pitching line in baseball history is a complete game shutout. Is a four-hit shutout. It's only happened 134 times. Yeah, it's fun. Like, baseball's weird, and I, I still think, like, a lot of, you know, if you're not an old man like me, even, like, you don't 
remember, you know, we talked about him earlier, like Dwight Gooden. Like when Dwight Gooden was striking out nine per nine, that was unbelievably dominating. Right. You know, when he was striking out a guy in an inning, it was like, holy crap, this is insane. You know, and now if a guy's like not striking out a guy in an inning, you're like, nah, he's a pitch to contact guy. I mean, aren't you glad um, we talked about this? I'm very glad we talked about this. I love this. Co- yeah, this is this is fun. But you need to do the, the I think the unique hitting lines is actually as interesting. And it's also only four numbers. So it gets weirder quicker. Yeah, that is very true. Kevin, I thought of the guy I was trying to bring up earlier. Is there I'm ready. We can wor- work it back in. No, we can't. The, the podcast is very fixed and very, very regimented. Uh, right, there's right. no tangents. There's no off thing. Go ahead. Who you got? John Lester? Tim Hudson? I think Tim Hudson, just because like Hudson had a had a had a, 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 a real peak that was better than Lester. I, too, would take Tim Hudson. Uh, Tim Hudson, absolutely not a Hall of Famer. Sorry, buddy. Right, but like Tim Great Hudson player. was was right, but yeah, Hall of I mean, Tim Hudson got had some had some hurts. Yeah, um, pitched more yeah, than John Lester. Did he really? Shocking. That's shocking because I remember he had like like this post Oakland time. He had some. He he kind of he had a couple of years with Atlanta where he just kind of wasn't around. Um, and I know he bounced back to it, but yeah, you're right. Look at that. Yeah, Tim Hudson, really good pitcher. Here's something I would never have guessed. He pitched 1600 innings in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Like, how many do you think he pitched in Oakland? I um, well, only he, it was it was only six years because he was Oakland, so he left as a free agent as soon as he was done. So okay. I don't know, tw- like twelve hundred, right? Twelve hundred and forty, yeah. yeah. There I, you go. If he made the Hall of Fame, or if they expanded it to a Hall of Very Good, would he wear a Braves cap or an A's cap? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> Because there should not be plaques. Because there should not be plaques in the Hall of Fame. Well, that's fair. But I guess w- will you remember Tim Hudson as an A or a Brave? How about that? That's the actual question I'm asking. Oakland, I, definitely Oakland. But that's you know, but that's like also where, where my mind goes in the sense that like, I mean, my first thought about Tim Hudson is like, oh yeah, six round pick out of Auburn because they didn't think because they didn't, they thought he was kind of smallish and wouldn't hold up. You know, right? Like that's so. So my 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 context begins with. Him coming up and being drafted and coming up with Oakland. He's close for me um, because... And so that's where my brain ends up. Zito is just easily Oakland for me. Mm-hmm. Mulder, easily yeah. Oakland. Yeah. Hudson is, like, right on the dividing line for me. And just because he's from Georgia, right? Yeah. Yeah. He feels very bravesy to me. Uh, but... Tim Hudson, John Lester, I think very, very close comparables in terms of the sweep of their career. John Lester, win, more winning. He played for mm-hmm. better teams. But, if uh, I say the name Yoenna Yo- Cespedes, too, do you think Oakland? I do. Well, okay. I actually think of his workout video. How could you not? Uh, and so, therefore, I think of him with Oakland. I watched uh, a workout video yesterday, in fact, of a... Uh, there's a... Another Cuban player. He's a pitcher who who just kind of uh, came loose. Let's just let's just go that, and he's going to be you know having uh, showcases for teams soon. Got it. Uh, and it was, it's a nine minute video, and the first minute and a half of is of him throwing off a mound. Okay. Right, and and then the last seven and a half minutes is simply him stretching. <laughs> it's just stretching. He's just stretching, and guys like pulling on his leg and then pushing him down. It's just seven and a half minutes of stretching. That that is wonderful. I, I don't know what else to say about that aside from that's great. I'm very in favor of that existing. So we'll do some stretching now. We'll take a break. We'll come back. 
We'll uh, you'll listen to a, a wonderful track from Mirrorbox. We'll read your emails. We'll catch up with Ben. We'll have our moment of culture. So stick around.
back to the show. You are listening to a track by Mirrorbox. Mirrorbox is, much like last week's musical guest, Nervous Curtains, another instrumental project by Sean Kilp, friend of a friend of the show, Sean Kirkpatrick. Um, more electronic stuff and more doom, like doomy descriptions as Mirrorbox rejects both utopia and dystopia in favor of a hyper-reality that reveals the psychological and social alienation of the current moment. So if that's the happy kind of thing you want to listen to, check out Mirrorbox. And thanks to Sean for providing it. You can learn more about them at their Bandcamp page, which is mirrorbox.bandcamp.com. And Mirrorbox has two X's, so it's Mirrorbox with an extra X at the end. I should point out they were formerly known as Mirrorbox with one X. They had to change. You know, maybe I'm sure there was some, there probably was another mirror box. There actually are quite a few. I, I tried to find them online. There was like, there's multiple bands called mirror box. And so this is how they differentiate themselves. But um, I got a note from a uh, frequent podcast co-host, Eric Longenhagen saying that he really dug nervous curtains. So hopefully he will be digging mirror box as well. Uh, are you ready for your emails? Yeah, let's do them. Send your emails to the show. The email address music at fancrafts.com when you send that they come to me and i read them i do not have an assistant who reads my emails um well i have you i like saying that while i have you as if i haven't had your attention for a while <laughs> well i have you um we do ask you to rate and review the show if you are a person who listens in the apple ecosystem uh within their podcast or apple store or whatever just rate and review us it helps us. I can't even explain why. It's never been properly explained to me why, but it does matter. So rate and review us. Give us a good review. If you don't like the show, don't rate and review it. But if you like the show, do rate and review it. Our first email comes from Justin. And Justin says, Hey, what do you hey, think Justin. about the cha- what do you think about the changes they're making to left field at Camden Yards? As a fan, moving the walls in left field up thirty feet back up to thirty feet back and six feet higher at to six to 13 feet higher seems like a drastic change how do they arrive at this decision like this in the front office do they run models that showed 30 feet back with 13 foot high walls will be better than 20 foot back with 10 foot high walls compared to the present dimensions what changes do you envision the change having for right-handed hitters going forward both for the orioles as they're currently constructed and visiting teams so I, i'm this is going to be a kind of like the, the correct we can say i i i know people in the Orioles front office. Obviously, I work very closely with with people like like Sigmael and, and and Michael Elias. I have not talked to either of them about this, but as soon as I saw this, I did picture whether this happened or not. I have no idea, but I did picture Sig with a model, like showing this is the exact dimension and stuff that will make this exact impact, and this is what we should do. But I have no idea if that's what actually happened. Um, so, but I could see it happening where he's running models at different heights and different lengths, and this was this is the this is why we should do it, and this is why it's good. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you know Andrew Perpetua? I do not. He's a uh, he worked for the Mets for a while. He wrote for Fangraphs and Rotographs for a while. He is a an analyst, a very good analyst, I think, who kind of freelances at this point. I'm not exactly sure what he does, but he took all of the home runs hit at Camden Yards from 2019 to 2021. Looked at the and new plotted divisions, them on the new world. Plotted them on the new world, as he said, made the groups by nothing scientific. 94 homers lost, 110 homers are goners either way, 37 maybes. If you assume half the maybes are homers, you get a 47% reduction in that part of the field. Over what of, Over what, what period of time was this? 2019 to 2021. So recent sample. So so 30 home runs a year? 
Uh, no, no, no. Um, so, a hundred. This is only in thirty percent of the park. That's the percentage of the fence that they're messing with. Um, right. Hundred ten homers are gone either way. Ninety four were home runs, but wouldn't be with the new dimensions. And thirty seven were kind of you know, he couldn't really tell. They okay. were over so the new fences, but the wall, the heights changed. Right, and so it's a hundred something home runs lost, right? Yes, a forty seven percent reduction in home runs. So, but and over over a three year period, so I was I wasn't crazy. It's thirty something home runs a year. Yeah, and uh, as he said, forty seven percent reduction over thirty percent of the park is a fourteen percent reduction park wide. But that doesn't take into account handedness. It'd be obviously mm-hmm. a lot worse for righties. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely sure that they modeled this i don't know how much they think about it in the context of the team you know right especially with the orioles where the team's going to look very different in one year and two years and three years right and their best major league hitter is a lefty mm-hmm. their best minor league hitter uh some would say the best minor league hitter in baseball or the best minor league player in baseball is a switch hitter right so, to the extent that you do care about those two guys, this, this isn't a big deal for them. Uh, I don't know how much front offices care about it, but I I do think this is a thing that was modeled for sure. Why, why would you not? I can't, my question is that I don't have an answer to is, is what potentially did the model say to them that made them think this is something we should do? Now, that is an interesting question. I, you know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, obviously the Orioles have been really bad, and a huge part of that really badness has been pitching. Right. Um, are they, you know, a, if you can reduce scoring, you have less variance and you're in more games? Is, I, I'm, just, like, I'm just riffing here, man. Yeah. Um, I think one thing is reducing scoring within a reasonable band doesn't mess with hitters. But having a band box like Camden Yards, I think, messes with pitchers. Mm. And yes, I do think. I think Coors Field messes with pitchers. And they play 81 games there, and no other team plays more than eh, 10. Right. And so having a, a more neutral environment for your team seems reasonable to me, particularly for your pitchers. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that it would be very miserable, both psychologically and actually in games, to be an Orioles pitcher. Right, uh, pitching in Camden. That doesn't sound very fun, and so I kind of get it. I I don't understand why they had why they had a Cookie Monster style bite taken out of the stadium rather than making the walls kind of <laughs> curve in some reasonable way. But uh, you know, I I could totally see the team saying to the front office, or you know, the, the pitching coach or whatever, saying, "Our pitchers hate this place, man. Like, can't you just make it somewhat reasonable? This this is a terrible place to pitch." What does your heart tell you? Like when you first saw the news, your first reaction was not a logical one. It was a gut one. Like what, my first reaction was like, okay, cool. Like it, it, I think baseball would be cool if everyone moved the feet, the, the, the fences back 20 feet. Yeah. My first reaction was, yeah, this makes sense to me. Um, I personally like strange wall shapes. So I'm very mm-hmm. into the new one. I like <laughs> the old Camden Yard nooks. I don't think they have those anymore. They had these little uh, little right. nooks in uh, the right center field or the right field corner and the left field corner that were supposed to create more triples that definitely did not. How many times right. the ball in there? But, my first year or man, it might have been two with the Astros. They still had Tal's Hill. 
no longer the flagpole, but still the hill, right? No, the flag was there, yeah. Oh, God. The flag was crazy. Yeah, the flag was crazy. The hill was stupid. Um, and Yeah, it was one or two years. My first one or two years, it was still there. Dumb, dumb thing. But I, I, I'm all for moving, making the stadiums bigger to accommodate what's happening in the game. Uh, yeah. Um, and I remember they said that this will cost them somewhere around 1,000 seats, making this change to the stadium. Right. Um, and that's fine. That, that, that won't kill them. Yeah, I think that those those were low juice seats too. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know, if, if it cost them a thousand front row behind home plate seats, it'd be like, wait, wait, wait what? Why are we doing right, this? Right no. But yeah, it's outfield seats. Outfield seats for a team that doesn't sell out. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Our next email comes from Ian, and Ian says, "When I saw that Dylan Cease had signed with Scott Boris, more people moving to Boris. My first thought was that there are, at least to me." Quite a range of outcomes for that eventual payday, from younger, tantalizing, but sometimes not so good Robbie Ray, all the way up to a younger, better 2021 Robbie Ray, battling Freddie to set a new AAV. And my next thought was that Boris, or any agent like Cease, would like him to wind up on the higher end of that possible of those possible outcomes. Bold, bold claim. My question is, to what extent, if any, do agents get involved with the development of their clients? I know Boris has a baseball facility, but is that just like a fancy gym? Or is it the high-end data-driven development going on there? Do other agents have things like this that you know of? I would imagine that Boris in particular has quite a bit more money than any of his clients, and the best way to keep that going seems to be revisiting some of it in said client's development. This could very well be known stuff, but I don't know it. Interested in where the lines are in that relationship. Um... Teams tend to leave players alone once they're with a team, or rather agents tend to leave the, the development of a player to the teams and, and don't get too involved. They do get a little bit involved. Uh, Boris gets very involved in the offseason. Um, like you said, he does have a facility. He actually has two. Um, the I think They're called like the Boris Sports Performance Institutes. Um, there's one by his offices in Southern California, and there's one in Miami. Um, they are exceptional. They are... Uh, not just a gym. They are filled with technology. They're filled with with TrackMan and very and, and various other uh, high end technologies. Um, all the lasers are there. All the cameras. Uh, they have their own strength and conditioning people. They have their own um, trainers. Their own medical people. Um, and it is a place to definitely work and get better. And he's made an, a huge investment in that. Um, he's the only agent I know of that has their own sport institute. A lot of agents definitely. Um, work with some of the bigger ones. I'm sure you've heard of Cressy in Florida, who a lot yes. of the players use, who's uh, in in in, um, in the Palm Beach area. Um, a lot of agents send players to Driveline um, to do stuff. Pitchers, obviously, in particular. Um, so a lot of them kind of third party it, but Boris is the only one with his own stuff. But they take a they they take a lot of interest in their player. I think the best way to put it is from you know, from like November 1st to February 15th in a normal world, they take a lot of interest and, and, and make definitely make an investment in them during that time. Most of them tend to let their not meddle, if you will, on what teams are doing with them. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, Boris is definitely a leader in that. And those, those, those Boris sports performance institutes are very, very impressive. Um, and so like, and again, like you could hate Scott Boris and, and that's, I get, if you do, I don't, um, but even if you hate him, I always, my answer is always, if you had an 18 year old kid throwing a hundred miles an hour, who would you hire? Yeah. You know, 
because I don't know if you'd hire Boris or not, but I guarantee you at least talk to him. No, certainly um, he'd be in the discussion. He, he's thought right. about stuff a lot. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, Boris is very involved with his players in, in terms of their kind of training and stuff like that on a, on a level that others are, are more kind of, they're involved, but they're more utilizing third parties while Boris is keeping things internal uh, with think- a huge investment. You think he consults, as it were, or gets consultancy from, you know, various pitch farms? I think he kind of has his own people, actually. I mean, it, it's Boris has such a staff, it's unbelievable. Like, you know, you can go to a minor league game or, or and if you like you go to a lot of minor league games or you're kind of, you know, in that world, you can go to a minor league game and you go, oh, I know that guy. He's this guy with the Royals. Oh, that, that's a, there's the guy with the Nats. There's the guy with the Mets. There's the guy with, with the Dodgers. And there's the Boris scout. Like, he has scouts. Do they, Literally, um, scouts who go to games. They do not. Uh, they should. No, they they tend to very shadow it. Like you need to. That yeah, they tend to be quiet in a corner. Got it. Um, and you go, oh, that's the Boris guy, and and they are literally identifying talent that they need to go after, and at times, um, you know, playing part of the recruiting. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, Boris has his own trainers, his own strength development people. Boris has his own scouting department. Boris, there are baseball scouts who work for the Scott Boris Corporation. Wow, that's a uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. cool at least. And, yeah, and I know a few of them, and and I've, I've yeah I've hired one away actually at one point from from them, and and they're 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 good scouts too. Um, and and yeah, I've, I know a few of them. I have a related question here. <laughs> yeah, who who is Freddie? I don't know. I was I mean Freddie Peralta will never make gigantic bucks because he signed was the it? most absurd deal ever. It's not Freddie Freeman, is it? No. I mean, that would. I mean, maybe it's Freddie Freeman, but why would he be but, battling Freddie Freeman? I don't know. Let's figure this out. Ian, who's Freddie? Freddie Please Galvis. email the show. It's probably Freddie Galvis. He's batting, battling Freddie Galvis at a new AV. Let's read the sentence again. Yeah. From a younger, tantalizing, but sometimes not so good Robbie Ray, all the way up to a younger, better 2021 Robbie Ray, battling Freddie to set a new AAV. Younger, better 2021 Robbie Ray would be... I mean, that's the 99th percentile outcome for Dylan C. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And better okay. at 2021, Robbie Ray. Wow, that guy's good. You know, you would think Ian, who has his own email editor, would have caught this. You'd think so. Uh, let's see. So Dylan C's, by the way, 26 this year. He has mm-hmm. uh, three years of service time, I'd say. I was going to ask, like, what's his free agent year? Looks like three years of service time. So he's got three more. He's pitched okay. 73, 58, and 165 innings. Those, those have all got to be full years. Mm-hmm. So, so Boris is going to manage his arb and then get him to free agency, right? So he will sign it. He'll be going into his age thirty season, if I'm doing the math yeah. right. So he mm-hmm. would be younger than Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray is th- nope. Robbie Ray is thirty. No, right. <laughs> so he'd be a he'd be a same age. He might be a year younger. I think he'd be signing at twenty nine, going on thirty, and Ray would be thirty, going on thirty one. Okay, so yeah, perhaps a very slightly younger. Uh, Robbie Ray. And even if he's just like a good starting pitcher, like, you know, yeah. that's still going to be a good payday for Boris. A worse Robbie Ray would be a good payday for Dylan Cease. Right. If he, you know, if he signs three times 15. Right. Let's Great. just make that one up. Three, that's $45 million. Right. Yeah. It's a seven figure payday for the Boris Corporation. For sure. I don't know exactly where into the seven figures, but certainly seven figures. It's, it's tough. Like the, it's, there's not a fixed percentage. It tends to be three to five. Right, they do. Those have been negotiated down a lot, which I think makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, 
Uh, our final email comes from David, and David says, Hi, KG, an esteemed co-host. Ooh, thank you. I'm e- emailing from cold yet sunny Denver, Colorado. You've mentioned numerous times that owning a baseball team is an excuse to print money. I certainly subscribe to that belief. So here's the question. If owning a baseball team is so lucrative, is there any reason why I and the listeners of your podcast shouldn't be investing money in the Liberty Braves group, seeing that as an opportunity to gain a share in that printing money process? I believe this stock symbol is stock symbol is B-A-T-R-A. It is. And it's up 28% over the last five years and 4.6% over the past 12 months. Is there something I'm missing here? Or is this a sound investment based on how you've described the financials of a professional baseball team? I will begin this by saying, The Chin Music Podcast is not one that offers financial advice. There are risks in all investments, and you should take those into account before making any choice. Please consult a financial advisor before making any decisions. Please consult a financial advisor before making any decisions. I have no idea, David. I don't understand the stock market. I'm, I know I should. I am 52 years old, and I should, but I don't. Right? I have, I have investments in like index funds and mutual funds, but I don't have. Like, I don't buy individual stocks. I don't understand how it works. I am baffled by it. It is a mystery to me. Now, that said, I do know that capitalism is often a bad thing, and that teams hide money and hide revenue, and like the the financials that even a public facing company releases are not necessarily an accurate statement of their where they are and so i have no idea if it's a good investment or not not a clue in the world it's i know that i know that i know that i know that the team's making tons of money but i don't know if it's a good stock or not because i don't think those two things are necessarily connected yeah as i have looked through, ben you have worked in this world i have you were uh you were a financial dude i was um i did not dirty my hands with gross things like companies I traded a <laughs> government, traded something government obtuse and weird. That high, highly rated governments who wouldn't default, and uh, and then derivatives thereof. So really nothing. I don't like even know. See, I don't even. I don't even know what a derivative of government debt means. So I like bet on interest rates going up or down. This is your job. You made money. It was by betting on interest rates going up or down. I I did a lot of um, what is called relative value. Uh, investing where you would say that these two things don't make sense next to each other and so you can bet on one and against another and or some basket of four or five things all put together you'd say well these don't add up to one like something's wrong here and over the long run make money on the relationship between various prices of financial instruments very mathy um i did not do this kind of thing where you like look at companies and see whether you think they're going to make money uh right the batra prospectus and like their various reports were i looked at them briefly this morning uh well, last night actually went before i went to bed and i didn't completely understand them it doesn't seem like it's a perfectly exact proxy for owning a baseball team no yeah um that said it's kind of close and like you said it's uh it's been it's been chugging right along for the last five years. Uh, despite, you know, the pandemic year, that's that's been the worst year for owning a baseball team ever, probably. And yet they went up 5%. Yeah, so it, it seems like it is probably not a perfect representation of owning a team, but directionally makes sense. And yeah, uh, there's a reason that people want to buy teams. Uh, one thing that is a little bit different I should say, is that 
because it is an openly traded, publicly traded stock, this should reflect, you know, the the most recent value of the Braves. And yet, the market capitalization of Batra is $31 billion, and the Braves are not worth $31 billion. Right, so that's where things get weird. That should tell you that this is not a, a perfect uh, representation of what's Right, it's not a one-to-one -one match. And then market caps are very strange. As someone who you know, in his 20s, in the 90s, spent time working for uh, internet startups, some of who went public. Um, not to get too in the weeds here, but I do know what a P to E ratio is. Right. Um, and uh, one of the companies I worked for went public, and at one point their P to E ratio was over 10,000 to one. Yes. Um, Liberty is trickier, and uh, the Braves in general, because they report their earnings in strange ways, and they try to depreciate and hide things and they're building out the battery right and so you know if you if you make uh 100 million dollars in a year and then what you do with that is spend 100 million dollars uh building a building well then you didn't actually mm -hmm. make any profit um i actually wrote an article right. about it, this it's, called yeah, how to like make when... 750 million dollars cash free uh, <laughs> about so... baseball teams when um we had the when the, we had the very messy 2020 season and uh the cubs ownership the ricketts family uh used the term biblical losses oh yes um and those biblical losses were based on the fact that they did make a nine figure investment into real estate they basically bought up half of wrigleyville yeah and so yes and, and therefore and by, and they didn't pay cash for it they took on um i'll use the term mortgage even though they're more complicated next to the size of these deals but mm -hmm. Like they took on debt to pay these things. And so, yes, they took on truckloads of debt. And they also now own half of Wrigleyville. So the fact that the concept they quote unquote lost money, it'd be like saying anyone who buys a house lost money when obviously you have not. And so that's the kind of stuff that they say that doesn't, it's, it's, it's not genuine. Uh, here's another Tom Ricketts quote. Most baseball owners don't make, don't take money out of their team. They raise all the revenue they can from tickets and media rights and they take out their expenses and they give all the money left to their GM to spend. Uh, that's very similar to when Bill DeWitt said this about Ballpark Village. We don't view it as a great profit opportunity. <laughs> well, buddy, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Yeah, I you're getting into the. You get. Go ahead, finish your point. I was gonna say I do think that Batra is a weird one because it doesn't. It's, it's a strange tracking stock. It doesn't seem like a, a pure tracking stock, and I haven't dug enough into the exact details to understand why, but that market cap is a, a good example of why. I can't see a lot about any of their debt stuff, but it's probably weird there, too. Uh, yeah. But yeah, baseball team ownership is a good business, and yeah. I think the fact that the stock has done what it has is probably a good indication of that, but it is not, it is not fair to say... That yeah, it it's not it's not a direct correlation, yes. right? So, David, our answer is we don't know. It's yes, and, and we're not going and we're not and we're not going to tell you what to do. Yeah, please, um, uh, please make your own investment decisions after consulting with a licensed professional, which I no go. longer am. I my license has lapsed. Did you really? Did it really? Yeah, when I stopped working for a bank, there stopped being. A did you think about Did you think about renewing it? No. Okay. Would that have cost money? I had no idea. <laughs> probably but yeah again like it's, it's like you know we see this all the time where that you know somebody buys a team uh, you know i'm going to make up a number for 800 million dollars 
and then they claim losses every year. Oh, we lost money this year. We lost money this year. We lost money this year. We lost $10 million this year. We lost money this year. And then eight years later, they sell it for $1.8 billion. Like, well, everything seemed to work out for you, pal. Right. You know, um, and, and it's, it's, it's a, you know, you're getting into the level of, of, of money when you talk about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, um, where, you know, very few of our emailers and neither of us, you can probably do better, like really get how that's all work. I, I, it gets, it's weird. Yeah. Um, I would just say this. You don't just take the cash out of the team. The example I gave was if you made $500 million and you bought the Salvatore Mundi, the very famous uh, painting by Leonardo da Vinci that costs $500, $500 million, uh, then you didn't actually make a profit. <laughs> right. You just acquired assets. And you actually assumed some debt. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, te- teams are complicated. They're probably good investments. I'm sure they're good investments. Uh I don't know that Batra is the way to show that. <laughs> uh, so those are your emails. Send your emails to us. Chinmusic at Fancrest.com. Bad time to catch up with you. We talked about this a little earlier when we talked about uh, sleep baseball. Yeah. But, you know, baseball itself is not providing us with a lot of things to react to right now. Um, how are you holding up in that world? I'm all right. Uh a few times in articles I've written, I've mentioned that there's not much to write about. And some people comment saying, come on, you don't need baseball games happening to write about baseball. It's like any offseason. And it's really not. There's, there's significantly less going on. That said, I don't know. Offseasons are weird. It's, you're always doing yeah, weird but, stuff. Writing about yeah, Aaron Nola's fastballs have... or... <laughs> But at least, like, in between writing about Aaron Nola's fastball, like, baseball itself is giving you something. Like, baseball does this, and you go, oh, I have thoughts. Right. And and that's gone right now. Yeah. Baseball's doing nothing but doing labor stuff, and, and I, I, you know, how much can you write about? It just keeps happening and happening. So I think, quite likely, that we're all producing less content at the moment, except for Jay and Dan, who are robots. Right, and Eric in the prospect group, and, and I'm oh, that's working you. on the Giants prospect list right now. How's, uh, how's Joey so, Bart? Not as good as he used to be. I got yeah, not not that yeah. He's a, he's not a horrible prospect. I just don't. He's stock is down. Don't invest in that one. <laughs> Bartra. <laughs> um. Yeah, I. I think the main thing that's been going on for me recently is that uh, my wife had COVID. That sucked. Oh, boy. How'd yeah. that go? Yeah, it was a mild case. And by the way, the definition of mild is that she did not need to be hospitalized. But she's, Right, that's your, that's your line? That, that's actually the, the definition the CDC uses. Uh-huh. So we just stuck with it. Um, yeah, no, it, was, it was terrible. She was bedridden for a week and... I mean, we walked our dog, Ruby, this morning, and we walked up a yeah, moderate, moderately steep hill at a, at a walking pace, and we got to the top, and she was winded. I mean. Mm-hmm. And how long ago did she, quote-unquote, recover? Uh, 14 days? Maybe, wow. Maybe longer? I don't know. I mean, she got so, it around Christmas. Okay. So, so um, you live with your wife in an apartment in San Francisco. I do. I assume it's not the biggest apartment in the world because it's in San Francisco. It's true. It's um, it's seventh in the ranking of ten biggest apartments in the world. And so, no, it's a um, room. It's not tiny. So how do you? Uh, this fascinates me. How do you manage this with your? Okay, oh, yeah. so, so your wife did not catch COVID. 
Right. So so your wife's in bed. Yes. Wiped out. Wiped out. Not leaving bed very infrequently. We would um is, we'd like is there an ensuite is there an ensuite bathroom yes. in the in the room. Okay, so she has her own bathroom. Yes, two bed, two bath. That's that's very helpful. Okay, so she can stay. She has her own bathroom. She can kind of stay in that room. You said you still hung out with her at night and watched TV. Yeah. At what distance? 12 feet. Um, she sat at our dining room table. We have one of those, like, not really a dining room, but there's a separate part of your living room where you put a table. Uh, a dining nook. Di- yeah. And I sat on our couch, which is also my bed. Mm. And we'd wear masks. Yeah, it was it was pretty lame. Uh, we'd elbow bump and not really hug that much. It, it, it's not very fun. Uh, I and so, do yeah. uh, did she? I assume she got a test and tested positive. Yeah. So uh, her comp- her employer provides us with tests. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, little, little at home kits called Q Health. They're they're neat things. They're at home PCR tests, rapid PCR tests. Uh-huh. They take thirty minutes to come back. And she tested negative. We we flew home from Milwaukee, which is uh, where her family lives. And she was feeling kind of bad, but had just tested negative for COVID. We got home. She was still feeling bad. So we tested again, negative. And then a few days later, we found out that someone in her family had tested positive. So she tested again, positive, And she's been consistently positive ever since. Right. And so did you, what do you, did she go to a doctor? Was there any treatment? Like, I have no idea how this works. So she did an e consult with uh with her primary uh-huh. care physician. They uh, we have a uh, pulse oximeter, little thing you clip on your finger and it tells you your blood oxygenation level. Yeah, O two saturation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Let's sound uh, very technical about this. Uh, hers remained very solid throughout. Uh, she never ran a particularly high fever, and so the doctor was not worried about hospitalization. They recommended, you know, fluids and uh, prescribe something for migraines because uh, if you infrequently suffer from migraines, COVID tends to accelerate your suffering. Uh, oh God, that sounds. They're from yeah, that's no good at all. I don't, I, I don't get them, but my wife does. Ditto, and rarely. Yes, I think she was on like a three a year pace in general, and then had yeah, three that's in about the same here since COVID. Oh fucking a! Uh, it has since calmed down, so you know that's all good. Uh, but yeah, it just seems really awful. I didn't know that happened. I'm but she's it. better now. Yes. Um, I mean, anytime that you're bedridden for a week or two, you're just going to be slow getting your stamina back. I think that's un- not right. special to COVID. Right, right. Now, we, I still feel very lucky. Like, we are, um, like, you know, the immediate family here is, is you know, obviously my wife, um, our two kids, and their partners, one wife, one fiance. That's six. Um, and we're still 0 for 6 in terms of getting it. But at the same time, um, the only one who actually goes to work mm-hmm. is um, the older son, and he works at a place that makes sterile medical equipment. So they're probably good. And so, like, they were safer than most places are even before the pandemic. Like, to get on the, the, the floor where they're making these things, he basically has to dress up like an astronaut. Right. Well, President Pierce you know? not part of the immediate family? Well, he's fine. He's not going to get COVID. <laughs> yeah, I don't think dogs and, can actually uh, get COVID. Yeah, he's 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 sturdier than we are, um, and so like I you know I saw you know a recent thing. It's like you know one in five people have had it now, and and I went on a run where everyone I talked to had it, um, but right now it feels like um, I don't know. Like we're kind of back to 
don't know. Maybe we're being too cautious, but we are kind of back to like 2020 behavior. Like we don't go anywhere. Yeah. So we have uh, we have guests coming over tonight. Uh, no, nope, mm. tomorrow night. I am all mixed up about what day it is. And they've both had COVID. One of them has had it twice. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, it's rough. You know, you gotta gotta decide where your bubble is. We had, uh, we had two separate guests over uh, last weekend to play board games. I don't really know where to draw the line, but uh, I think we had all tested before we came over. So. Right. Yeah, we've had yeah we had two of the kids over this weekend. It's it feels okay. Yeah, it it does feel worse than it did, and you know when we went to Phoenix. Yeah, there's that wonderful little window in the in, in the fall where it kind of felt like we're coming out of it. It's, it's been way slower than thought, but we're coming out of it. I was thinking recently about like when this first all happened, um, and I came home from the Dominican, and it was right, you know, it was like 24 hours after baseball kind of shut things down in the spring, and it, I, I was like, that's eh, gonna be like a month or so, and then we'll be back, and like here we are. Yeah, we're back. It's 2022. Yeah. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Ben. All right. I'm gonna go high. I'm going highbrow today. Oh, I'm going highbrow too. Let me. Uh, you go first, and I'll decide if I want to go lowbrow. So uh, this just showed up. I think last week on Apple TV Plus or whatever the hell they call their thing. Um, it's the new film by Joel Cohen, who's only who's now. There's no longer the Cohen brothers. One of them doesn't want to make movies anymore. Really? Um, yeah. Sad. And it's the tra- it's the tragedy of Macbeth, starring Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Um, this was not what I expected at all. I, I just, I just like, oh great, Cohen, Cohen, Macbeth, great, this will be great, and it looks really cool, um, and it's beautiful. Like, it's all very like stunning, high contrast, black and white. It looks like a like a Bergman film. It's a, it's on like big sets and you know obviously fake sets. It's it's very theatrical looking. Um, but what I did not expect it to be was a faithful to the script, if you will. I mean, it is it's it's the movie of a Shakespeare play. Like it's the words of Shakespeare in Shakespearean language. And so if you didn't study Macbeth and I did not, it's, I'm just, it's a little tough to follow along a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. Like, and again, it's like stunning. If you have like a nice TV and a nice sound system, it's, it's great. Like the sound is great. It's visually beautiful. Like I was certainly um, captured by the whole thing. But you know, if if you're not like a Shakespeare guy, you can be a little obtuse at times, and you're like, "That's not is 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 they're gonna get that guy? What did that guy say? You know, um, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're like, I don't, I I can't think I'm following. That's Macduff, right? You know, (laughs) that that kind of thing. Um, But I was, you know, is it my favorite Coen Brothers movie? No, and like you know, we just kind of like stumbled onto No Country for Old Men the other night. It was just like it was last night actually, and it was just like. I could watch this movie every time it's on. Yeah. Um, and, but I'm glad I saw it. It's interesting. It's good. And again, if like you have a nice, nice screen and nice sound, it's actually even better. There's um, lots of interesting little sound tricks they do. Um, and visually it's, it's kind of amazing. So recommend. Um, Strong recommend also, or kind of medium recommend? Sounds like medium. Uh, probably in, in between those two. Yeah. Sounds good. Solid recommend. Let's call it solid recommend. Um, and we're, and we and we're a little late to the party, but we are probably going to finish Yellow Jackets up tonight, which I'll maybe discuss at another time. That's a strong recommend. Yeah, I have not seen that, but would like to. Highly recommend. Yeah, it's been very, very good. What do you got, Ben? 
All right, I'm going highbrow. I, I couldn't think of a good lowbrow. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, listeners. Is this going to be a board game? Uh, no, it's going to be a book. Even worse. <laughs> uh, so I recently read or finished reading a book called Piranesi. It is by Susanna Clark. Susanna Clark has not written many books, but uh, two of the three that she's written I've read and I've loved them both. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a British writer. Uh, Piranesi is about a man who lives in an infinite labyrinth. And okay, so this is fiction then. <laughs> it is fiction. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not much of a nonfiction reader. I I, mm-hmm. I go through phases, but uh, it's about a man who lives in an infinite labyrinth and who perceives the world through that infinite labyrinth and the few people he meets. Uh, there aren't that many people in this labyrinth, and there's a twist, and I'm not going to tell you the twist. Do- but of course. So does he wait? So is his day just like waking up and randomly wandering the labyrinth? Yeah, and uh, writing a diary about it. The book is his diary. Oh, nice. And, and, so, uh, and so and so and once in a while, while navigating this, he'll run into somebody. He knows he's not alone in the labyrinth. Yeah, he has a, a friend named the Other, because uh, he doesn't know the Other's name. Uh, and then mm-hmm. he's found some uh, some some bones of people who previously lived in the labyrinth. Uh, and what what is the labyrinth made of? Marble. It is, okay. he calls it the house because it appears to be an infinitely large house. Uh, he's never, never found the limits of it, but he has mapped quite a good number of halls. He re- returns to the first hall every night to sleep, which makes sense. Uh, but he's gone as far as I think like the 99th Southwest Hall or something. It, it's a big place. Uh, and these halls are quite large and they're filled with enormous meters tall statues. Um, the book is about his experiences therein. Uh, it it starts slow, so slow that I re- my wife got it for me for Christmas last year, uh, Christmas 2020. <laughs> and I picked it up in June. We, we got a lot of books for Christmas, and it felt like a, a book that I wanted to read when we were on a vacation, which was in, in summer. Uh, I, I kind of lost steam on it, and then I started reading it again. And it turns out I was five pages before the twist when I stopped. And that's when it gets really and, good. Oh, man, it picks up picks up really really strongly at the twist uh as you might imagine it, it it's not just that this is this labyrinth is a whole world and there's only one other person that's that's not how it is uh it gets right. a lot better once the world expands it is really well done and really well written and i think Susanna clark is great and John- say, the, say the name of the book again uh piranesi p-i-r-a-n-e-s-i uh if you're into British writers who write kind of at a stately pace, but mm. really kind of pack it with uh, with good stuff, I highly recommend it. And if you want to read a, a Harry Potter for adults version, uh, then her first book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, is a, is a I think, far superior Harry Potter. I'm going to make people mad here. Not hard to do. I, I enjoyed Harry Potter. I'm younger than you. <laughs> Uh, I read Harry Potter when yeah. I was in school. Right. I just, I never got it. Just didn't understand it. But if if you dig it, that's cool. If it makes you happy, enjoy it. Kevin, let me tell you a story about my life. It's a short one and then we can leave. But uh, <laughs> I, I participated in an essay contest as a senior in high school. It's called the National Council of Teachers of English. What high school is this? Uh, Oak Ridge High School in Tennessee. It is a, it's a national home contest. Of, uh, I went to a home, of, home of the Oak Ridge. Wildcats. Uh, national okay. football champions in the 1950s. There you go. 
It was uh, it's where they did the uh, the Manhattan Project. Enriched a lot of uranium mm. there. Uh, anyway, that explains a lot. Yeah, it does. Uh, so there's this national contest, National Council of Teachers of English. It's an essay writing contest, and I forget what the prizes were. Maybe scholarships, maybe not. Um, and you get these prompts, and you have to pick one of the prompts. And there were two prompts, and one of them I don't remember it, but I didn't like it. And the other one was write about a book that became a movie and your experiences with both of those and what you like better about the book and what you like better about the movie. Um, and you did Harry Potter. I gave it some thought, and I couldn't think of any books that I'd read where I'd also seen the movie, including Harry Potter, because I hadn't seen the movie. Uh, but I thought, I can probably fake it. I, you know, I read the book. I probably know what the movie's about. And so I wrote a, a pretty long essay about the the pros and cons of the Harry Potter movie vis-a-vis the book, uh, having not seen the movie. And I won. I won that essay contest. It was... I. You know, I'm not humble, but I think it was quite well written. Uh, Would you win? I don't remember. I, I think like a small scholarship. Okay. But uh, my English teacher asked me, "Hey, uh, you know, this essay was great. Uh, like, what what did you think of the movie? Like, like does this really encapsulate your thoughts?" And I said, "I've never seen that movie." <laughs> she said, "Well, that's that's not great. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a good essay." Uh, would you consider writing about something where you actually were telling the truth? And I said, well, I, I didn't, I didn't, couldn't think of any things where I'd read the book and seen the movie. She said, what about the other prompt? And I said, well, it didn't, didn't sound like a good prompt. So yeah, Harry like Potter, um, decent books, uh, not not the best, uh, fun adventures, movies. As it turns out, I've, I've since seen them. Uh, some were good. Some were done by people I like. Uh, I think Alfonso Cuarón. I just remember seeing. I just remember seeing the first one, and it was you know obviously, I don't know, ten or eleven years ago, probably, and and Longer. we saw it with yeah, we saw it with the kids. That's right, yeah, twenty years ago, we saw it with the kids who were then kids, right? Um, and I just remember my wife and I just keep kept looking at each other, going, "I just can't believe how fucking long this is." Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, um, I think we're done here, Ben. I think we are. This Thanks for done. wasting your Thursday afternoon with me. This was a very or morning enjoyable. for you. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And, you know, no baseball. We'll keep going. We'll talk to you next week.